you know, like the prophets of old, pastors share a similar responsibility towards their people. You see, like the prophets, pastors, their job is not to give you mood-altering drugs, but mind-altering doses of reality called doctrine, called theology. In other words, the job of a pastor is not to give his people therapy, but to give his people theology. And yet any pastor who reads the Bible would agree that the therapy that he does give must be profoundly theological. See, the job of a pastor is not merely to help you be optimists and no longer pessimists. Rather, my job, my aim, my ambition for you is to help you see and interpret life through the lenses of the supremacy of Christ. I mean, you understand what this is, what a Sunday morning is. What a Sunday morning sermon is, is not a mythical interlude in a week of reality. No, this is reality. Theology is reality. What God says, what God speaks, what God has declared in the sacred text, this just is reality. And what we see and feel and think on the surface must bow in subjection to what the sacred text says. See, in days like these of madness and chaos and darkness, we don't need less theology, we need more theology. We don't need to dial back on doctrine. We need to double down on the study of doctrine, and in particular, the doctrine of eschatology, because you understand the theological coping mechanism the Bible gives in days of danger and darkness and despair. What it gives us to survive and thrive in crisis and fear are riveting portrayals of how the world is going to end and how it's going to begin again. That's exactly what Isaiah gives in our text this morning. Namely, that the way to cope in crisis and fear is not good vibes and positive thoughts, but rather good theology and biblical thoughts. Because you well know by now that at the time Isaiah wrote this prophecy, the people of Judah were in a major, really serious crisis. And by that I mean the Assyrian crisis. At this moment, the monster of Assyria had already invaded the land. Dozens of towns and cities leveled to the ground. Thousands of people were dead. And at this moment, the hordes of Assyria were headed straight to Jerusalem. And according to chapter 37, with as many as 185,000 soldiers, which are as many or more people than even lived in Jerusalem. So suffice it to say, the people of Judah are not going to survive an invasion. This is not going to go well. Their very existence hangs in the balance, you understand. All of God's promises seem to to hang in the balance. And the worst part of all is you need to understand, it was all Judah's fault. They were total apostates. They had broken the covenant. Immorality and idolatry filled the land like pollution. And like God promised that he would do in Deuteronomy, should they get in bed with idols and shatter the covenant, which they had done, he would remove the shield of protecting grace and he would send enemy armies just like Assyria to invade the land and teach his people a lesson. And you understand, in that situation, the job of Isaiah 
was not to help his people be optimists and no longer pessimists, but to help his people be theologians. That they would see the world through the lenses of the supremacy of Yahweh. And to do that, he gives them a song. See, that's what chapter 26 is. It's a song to be sung in days of danger. These are lyrics to sing in times of crisis. When fear and uncertainty suffocate your soul and you have no choice left but to cast yourself upon the sovereignty of God and his plan for a kingdom at the end of the age. That is why Isaiah 26 is in your Bibles. And we really, really need this because we too, we also live in days of danger, crisis, and terror, and fear. Because you know this chapter comes in the middle of what I call the little apocalypse. The little apocalypse, and by little I mean that it's shorter than the book of Revelation, which is the big one. In other words, you understand what chapters 24 through 27 are, are the Cliff's Notes version of the book of Revelation, and both of them unfold a high-def Blu-ray display of how God is going to crush the world in the future with the hammer of his wrath and how he's going to rebuild the world again in the glory of his kingdom. And you know why, don't you? You know why God tips his hand and reveals the future. You know why he spoils the ending and ruins the surprise. It's not because we need to be more optimistic in our outlook. It's because we need to be more futuristic. We don't need good vibes and positive thinking. We need good theology and biblical thinking. What we need in days of danger and times of terror is a staggering vision of a glorious God with an unstoppable, sovereign purpose in the universe. That's exactly what Isaiah gives. So here we go. This morning, I want you to see from the text that Charles just read four responses. Four responses to clear and present danger as we patiently wait for kingdom deliverance. That's where we're going. Four responses to, to clear and present danger as we patiently wait for kingdom deliverance. And this prophetic song comes in four movements. Movement number one, I call the longing for God's intervention. The longing for God's intervention. You know, if you think about it, chapter 26 makes perfect logical sense in the sequence of Isaiah's book. You remember the little apocalypse began in chapter 24. And what chapter 24 was, was a jarring display of the tribulation terrors to come at the end of the age. And yet it was not only that, because it also gave us a beautiful preview of the kingdom to come. In chapter 25, we saw last week, chapter 25 is the kind of song you sing when you get into the kingdom. When sin is slain, when death is defeated, when we dine with the king and the splendor of the kingdom. It's the kind of song that you sing when the nations are redeemed, when paradise is regained, when the king rules and reigns over the nations. From the throne in Jerusalem, that's chapter 25. It is a song. Chapter 26 is also a song. But it's not the kind of song you sing when you're in the kingdom. It's the kind of song you sing while you wait 
for the kingdom. It's a song you sing when you ache and you long for the king to return and make all things right in the world. When you're staring down the barrel of danger and darkness and it almost, it almost looks like evil will win. It won't win, of course. It will not win. But it almost seems like that it could. And so this is the song you sing in days like that. Verse 1. Isaiah says, In that day, this song shall be sung in the land of Judah. Stop there. Notice, it is a song to be sung in that day. What day? A future day. An ugly day, a scary day, a dark, dark and terrible time coming in the future filled with danger and terror and nightmares come true, kind of like when a brutal enemy army invades your land and storms your gates and burns your cities and kills your children, that kind of day. In fact, I am persuaded that this song was composed around the time of 701 B.C. That's an important date because in, on that, in that year, it's when the armies of Assyria invaded the land of Judah. And at this moment, they were either headed towards Jerusalem or they were outside the gates of Jerusalem, even as we speak. And the reason why I say that is because the language in verses 17 and 18 to describe the agony and pain of Assyria coming to destroy them is the exact same language, or I should say this, the, the language used in 17 and 18 of the pain and agony they were in is the exact same language in chapter 37 to describe the agony and pain of Assyria coming to invade them. Does that make sense? It's the exact same language. This language here to describe the pain correlates chapter 37, the anguish of Assyria. See, I think the song was composed by Isaiah when that was going down. Because notice there in verse 1, it was a song to be sung in the land of Judah, which means it's a song to be sung in crisis and fear. These are lyrics to recite in danger and darkness. Kind of like the moments we live in now. My question is, do, do you need this song right now? You need this. My guess is that you do. Because although, although maybe an enemy army is not invading our city and putting us in chains right now, we still do live in a fallen world. Do we not? We all live with crises and fears of various degrees, sins and struggles and pains as we groan in a fallen body. We live in a fallen world enchanted by the spell of the evil one. We choke and we gasp on the darkness that's around us. We, we see all around us persecution coming in and closing in on the church. We worry for our children. We worry for the future. We worry because we cannot predict nor control what is going to happen. This is the kind of song you sing in days like that. The song actually begins in verses 1 and 2. Look what he says. He says, we have a strong city. He, that is God, will appoint bulwarks and a wall as salvation for us. Open up the gates, he says. And let a righteous nation who keeps faithful enter in. Well, that's interesting. 
Those are, those are pretty strange lyrics to sing when an army outside your city is so big that they actually outnumber the number of people in your city. Those are really strange lyrics to sing. Look what he says. We have a strong city. No, you don't. Not compared to the Assyrians. He says, he, God, will set up walls and bulwarks as salvation, meaning we will be safe and secure. No harm will befall us. God will intervene and deliver us. Maybe. Maybe not. It's no guarantee. And then verse 2, open up the gates. Let a righteous nation who keeps faithful enter into the city. What are you, stupid? Assyria's out there. You don't open the gates. They're not righteous. They want to obliterate you and crush you out of existence. Do you see? Do you see what the song is doing? The lyrics to sing in crisis and fear are the ones that portray a world without crisis and fear. Do you see? In other words, the song you must sing in days of danger is the future kingdom when there will be no more days of danger. I mean, think about it. The city, Jerusalem, did not have some magic force field around it. It could still be invaded and conquered and destroyed if that's what God had decreed, and he had decreed that because 120 years later, it's exactly what happened when Babylon took a wrecking ball to the city and leveled it to the ground. Fires could still burn it. Bombs can still destroy it. But at the exact same time, here's the point. The point is nothing can ultimately wipe Jerusalem out of existence. The point is no matter what you do to Jerusalem, it will still be rebuilt. It will still be revived. It will still be reinstated as the capital of the kingdom when Jesus Christ arrives. And so you see what the song is doing. It's banking on a kingdom promise. It's trusting in prophecies made about the future, and you see, that is why eschatology matters, because it's God's promise in writing that he will make all things be the way they ought to be. I mean, that's insanely practical, isn't it? That's insanely practical, that that what you sing in a crisis is not how good things used to be, but how good things will be when Jesus Christ arrives. This is so helpful for us in our current political and cultural climate. The LGBT sexualizing and targeting children with political and jovial acceptance. The economy at a breaking point and a major recession literally on the brink. Major cities coming unraveled filled with chaos and crime, open borders allowing more drugs into the country than ever, which is the major killer of everyone between 18 and 45. And and as we watch the culture in the death throes and coming apart at the seams, the way to respond is not to think how good we used to have it before the liberals took over. No, the way to respond is to remember how good we will have it when Jesus Christ arrives and builds his kingdom. When we can open up the gates 
and call the righteous to enter into the city. And yet what's so profound about this is that Isaiah was the quintessential biblical counselor. He wasn't only a prophet, he was a biblical counselor. He did biblical counseling before it was cool. And you understand that, that what he, he knew, you see, Isaiah knew that the secret to conquering fear and panic and worry and anxiety and depression comes down to having a death grip control over our thought lives and the very thoughts that we think in our minds. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, the steadfast of mind, you, God, will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in Yahweh forever and ever, for in the Lord, Yahweh is an everlasting rock, literally a rock of ages. And you can see it, can't you? The key word link that binds those two verses together is the all-important million-dollar word, trust. Trust. God will keep in perfect peace. The one who trusts in him, verse 4. Verse 4, trust in Yahweh forever and ever. Do you see? The question is, what does it mean to trust in Yahweh? What does that mean to trust? Well, it means a lot of different things, not the least of which that at the top of what it is that makes him trustworthy is his sovereign love, which governs everything that comes to pass. Do you hear that? Sovereign love. Not just sovereign, not just love, but the sovereign love of God that affectionately rules and reigns and causes and controls and governs every single moment in our lives to the exact outcome that he himself determined. That there are no accidents in the universe. There are no coincidences in the world. There's nothing random in the world. There's nothing unplanned. There's nothing unintentional. There's nothing that God himself didn't decree before the foundation of the world. That is what it means to trust him. That is what makes him worthy of trust. So the question is, do you, do you trust in the sovereign love of God to have ordained what is best for you? Do you believe that no matter what it is that transpires in your life, it was sent to you by infinite love and mercy? Because you understand, that's what Isaiah means by steadfast of mind. Look again at verse 3. He says, the steadfast of mind, you will keep in perfect peace. Do you see that? The steadfast of mind. The stable of mind. The one who does not permit their thought lives to spin out of control in a thousand different directions in a windstorm of emotions. And the reason they don't is because their theology of God keeps them stable. Their view of God keeps them sane. The very character of God keeps them from thinking thoughts that lead to panic and fear and anger and despair. In other words, reality is not necessarily how you feel in your emotions. Reality is who God has revealed himself to be in the pages of Holy Scripture. That is true. That is reality. 
And what does Isaiah say is the effect of a mind governed by truth instead of by emotion? He says that the steadfast of mind, God will keep in perfect peace. Literally, the Hebrew says peace, peace, shalom, shalom, double peace, exponential peace, pervasive peace, a transcendent peace that simply defies explanation. And the reason why it does is because our joy is not dependent upon our circumstances, but upon the God who is sovereign over our circumstances. Do you feel the difference? That's why the very next line in the song says, trust him. Trust in Yahweh forever and ever. I mean, why would we do that? Why would we trust in him? Because verse 4 says, in the Lord Yahweh, we have an everlasting rock, literally a rock of ages. Infinite, eternal, uncaused, uncreated, unchangeable, and sovereign. The question is, do you have perfect peace this morning? Do you have shalom, shalom, double peace, pervasive peace, transcendent peace that simply defies explanation? Do you understand that no matter what it is that happens to you, It is on order from the throne of grace. Church, my question is, what ails you this morning? What troubles you this morning? What is it exactly that plagues you and haunts you and stalks you and cripples you and disturbs you with anxiety and fear? Because whatever it is exactly that does those things to you, the prophet counselor has given us a path to overcome. Occupy and fill your mind with what makes God worthy of trust. That's not all. Verse 5 included in the song to be sung in days of danger, kind of like the ones we live in now, is when God will crush the pride of men and level the wicked cities of the earth to the ground. That's worthy of our contemplation. That's worthy of us singing about. (laughs) The point, the point of verses 5 and 6, goes on to describe that the people of God, after the wicked cities are destroyed, that the people of God will walk among the ruins and the smoldering bricks of the city. And the point is, the point is, everything in our world that's backwards and mangled and ruined and twisted and mutilated and broken, one day will be overturned and reversed when God comes back and takes back the planet that's rightfully his. And what that does is give us perspective, doesn't it? But you know what happens, what can happen, what does happen to God's people, what can happen to the church when we're surrounded by sin. Day after day, after day, and not even just surrounded by sin, but when we feel the ever-increasing pressure to compromise. Do you feel this? To grind us down? To wear us down with intimidation until we compromise and crack and bend under the weight of the culture to loosen our grip on righteousness and holiness. Can you feel this? This is exactly what's happening. 
Because you understand there's no such thing anymore as love the sinner, hate the sin. You understand that's a thing of the past, right? Not because we don't believe that, but because the culture will no longer allow that compromise. You hate the sin, and you're automatically guilty of a hate crime. Silence is now violence. You fail to speak and support and sing the praise of whatever fringe group demands their validation. You become a bigot, fascist, ultra-maga, racist, transphobic, Trump supporter worthy of getting canceled by the mindless mobs of the digital holocaust. The point I'm trying to make is that in Isaiah's culture and in ours, it can be really, really tempting to relax on righteousness and to yield on holiness. And yet the song labors to prevent that from happening. Look at verses 7 and 8. The way of the righteous, Isaiah says, is smooth. And then he prays, O upright one, O God, make level the path of the righteous. Indeed, the way of your decrees, Yahweh. Because of that, we hope in you for your name and your memory. Memory is the desire of our souls. There's a lot going on there, but can you see what links those two verses together? The way of the righteous, verse 7, and the way of God's judgments or decrees in verse 8, which means at stake here in this part of the song is who we are and how we must live no matter the cost or pain it might bring. Look what he says in verse 7. He says, the way of the righteous is smooth. The way of the righteous is smooth. Really? I would hardly describe it as smooth. The way of the righteous may bring persecution and pain, suffering, and even martyrdom. But it is smooth in the sense that it is the only path in the world that leads to pleasure and joy and satisfaction and eternal rewards in the kingdom of the Son. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that the way and the path of the righteous is the only one that leads to eternal rewards. You had better believe that because if you don't believe that, you will begin to crack. Because you understand, instead of slowing down, instead of pumping the brakes on righteousness, the righteous are called to accelerate into even more righteousness. Look, Look what he says. Look at the song praise at the end of verse 7. The way of the righteous is smooth. O upright one, make level the path of the righteous. In other words, in days like these, when we are tempted to compromise, help us, God, to, to double down on righteousness. All gas, no brakes, accelerate into even more righteousness. No matter the cost, no matter the persecution it might bring. Because you understand the darker and the cold and cold the, the darker and colder the culture gets, the response to that is not to blend, but to stand out. Light and heat, passion and purity, theology and morality. Or as we say it around here, we must prize Christ, we must portray Christ, and we must proclaim Christ. 
me ask you this morning, in all seriousness, are you still walking the path of the righteous? Or have you begun to bend? Are you still walking the path of the righteous? Or have you begun to crack Are you still walking the pleasure-filled path of righteousness leading to eternal reward? Or have you begun to compromise? A fear of getting ostracized, canceled, penalized, hated, fired from your job? Are you pumping the brakes? Are you slowing down? Are you blending into the culture? This is really, really serious, church. We cannot let them grind us down or pressure us to conform. Instead, we must be a word-filled people who have an invincible hope and an insatiable longing for the living God, which is exactly what verse 8 describes. Look what he says. Indeed, because of the path of your decrees, Yahweh, we have hoped in you. For your name and your memory is the desire of the soul. Do you see that? That's what the culture needs from us. The greatest gift that you can give to the world, listen carefully, is to be a people who hope in Yahweh alone. The greatest gift that you can give to the world is to be a people for whom God is the greatest longing of your souls. Verse 9 says it again, with my soul, I long for you in the night. Also my spirit within me, I seek you. For when the earth has your decrees, they learn righteousness. Those who dwell in the world learn righteousness. What, What is he saying here? What he's saying is how we are to live until righteousness comes to the earth. How we are to live until the kingdom arrives. How we are to live until paradise is regained is to be a people who long for God and seek him as the treasure of our souls. That's our duty in days of danger. That is our calling in crisis and fear. That was all the first movement of the song. You're going to be here for a long time. Kidding, you're not. Movement number two. Movement number two in the song, which I'm calling the certainty of God's intervention. The certainty of God's intervention. Because that that is easy to forget, isn't it? That God will intervene. That God has decreed a day on the calendar when he will say, enough. It's hard to remember that that's going to happen because things have been the way they are for so long. And they've been so bad for so long that it's hard to remember that this will happen. And yet the next lyrics in the song assure us that it will. Look at verse 10. This, this is what the world is like today. Here's a description of his world and our world today. He says, the wicked are shown favor. In the Hebrew, there's no if or although. I don't know why they put it there. It's not there in the text. It just declares that the wicked are shown favor. They do not learn righteousness. They pervert what is right. And they do not see the majesty of Yahweh. Do do you see that? That is absolutely true, isn't it? That is exactly what the world is like today. The wicked are shown favor, aren't they? The wicked are favored. 
and praised and rewarded and their deeds are celebrated. That's exactly what we see today. I mean, who in the U.S., especially in June, has more favor or leverage or cultural power than the homosexual and transgender communities? I'm not angry at them. I'm just asking the question, who has more power than them? They can have anything they want. Anything. They can get people canceled, fired. They, they, they can have whatever job they want because if you don't hire them, that makes you a transphobe and that's a fate worse than death. Do you see, Isaiah knows, the point is Isaiah knows exactly how we feel. Notice how else the wicked are described. I mean, this could have been written today, verse 10, that they don't learn righteousness, which is obvious. They, they deal unjustly, and worst of all, they do not perceive the majesty of Yahweh. In other words, the world doesn't give a rip about God. They have zero idea or care at all that Yahweh is a God matchless and supreme. They do not see the supremacy of Yahweh. That's exactly our world today. And because it's always just been that way and getting worse for centuries, it's easy to forget that the wrath of God looms like a storm just about to break. Look at verse 11. Yahweh, your hand is raised. They don't see it. They will see. And they will be ashamed of the zeal for your people. Indeed, fire will consume your adversaries. It's astonishing to me that in days of danger and times of terror, that one of the things very appropriate to sing is the wrath of God coming upon the unrepentant. That feels weird for us. I've never sung a song on a Sunday morning about the destruction of the wicked. It feels really weird for us because we know that we deserve the wrath of God too, which is true, and yet here it is in the text, because the wrath of God also brings glory to God, and it is worth singing about. And here we see in the text that the hand of Yahweh is raised, hand meaning fist, the fist of God's fury is raised in anger, raised and ready to crush the human race in a knockout punch of judgment and wrath. It's Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And the human race is oblivious to this. They don't know the danger they're in. They live in drunken, inebriated ignorance, having no idea that the wrath of God abides over them. But one day they will know. One day they will see. In the tribulation, and especially in the second coming, they will be ashamed when they see the zeal of God for his people. This will be the great uh-oh of human history. You know that unbelievers have always enjoyed mocking, scoffing, martyring and murdering God's people. But when the great high king comes to claim his throne, they will find themselves not only on the wrong side of history, but the wrong side of eternity. And the fires of God's wrath will consume them. And with trembling hands and quivering lips, we should sing about that. That's why it's in the song. The result of God's judgment will, of course, be peace for God's people, verse 12. 
But, but then notice what Isaiah does in 13 and 14. In days of danger, times of terror, kind of like the ones we're in now, we must remember and sing that the success and the power and the brutality and the atrocities of the wicked that go nearly unrestrained in the world today one day no longer will be that way. Look at verse 13. He says, O Yahweh, our God, masters besides you rule over us. This is not a good thing. In Isaiah's day, this was the Assyrians. Then it was the Babylonians. Then it was the Persians. And then it was the Greeks. And then it was the Romans. And then it was the Muslims for centuries in the Middle Ages. And then it was the Holocaust and the genocide of Stalin. And there's never been a time in history where the Jews weren't staring down the barrel of someone who wanted to kill them. And even at this moment, most of the Muslim world wants to obliterate them out of existence. But the final outcome of the wicked is displayed in verse 14. Look what it says. Their dead will not live. Their spirits will not rise. Why, therefore, or because you will punish them, you will exterminate them, you will destroy every trace of them. I didn't, I didn't wake up one morning and be like, I can't wait to preach Isaiah 26 but I am so glad that I am because we need this. We need this. The point here, the point here in verse 14 is that not that unbelievers won't get resurrected too and then sent to the lake of fire because they will. Revelation 20 is clear. The point is when the wicked are dead and gone, they are dead and gone forever, never to return. I mean, do you feel this? We're talking about eternity here. You understand, it's not immoral. It's not unethical. It's not unloving at all to rejoice over the wrath of God coming in the future. It's not. So long as we remember that it is all for God's glory and that the only reason that we will not experience it is only because of the grace of God alone. The question is, the question is, have you received the grace that saves from the wrath of God? Have you been washed in an ocean of reconciling blood? Have you yielded to King Jesus in repentance and faith is what I'm asking. Because if I'm being honest here, I wouldn't be comfortable, totally comfortable singing this song today knowing that there may perhaps be some of you in the room about whom I would be singing because you are still under the wrath of God. And yet what mercy, what, what mercy extended to you today? That God withheld his wrath and he preserved your life another day to come here this morning and to hear the life-giving, soul-saving gospel of Jesus Christ and be reconciled to the living God. What mercy this God is having upon you even at this moment. So today, right now, is the day to yield to the King in repentance and faith, which brings us to movement number three of the song. Movement three we saw the longing for God's intervention, the 
certainty of God's intervention. Now, part three, the need for God's intervention. The need for God's intervention. Because all of a sudden, the song turns back to a minor key, if it ever left the minor key, to the weepy sounds of a violin, to, to the sour notes of a lamentation. Because you understand, one of the things Judah had to do, one of the things that Judah had to come to grips with is, the, is that the very reason they were in the mess they were in is because they did not take the book of Deuteronomy serious. They called God's bluff. They took their chances on the pleasures of sin, didn't they? And over time, the blinding power of sin gave them spiritual dementia until eventually they became so secular and godless that they looked exactly like the nations they kicked out of Canaan centuries before this. And this was a crime that Yahweh could not overlook. He had to move on this and punish his own people, which he did do by sending enemy armies to invade them and teach them a lesson. Unfortunately, they did not repent. At least not all the way. Look at verse 16. O Yahweh, they sought you in their distress. Listen carefully. They poured out incantations when you disciplined them. Now, I know your Bible says it different than that. But to be honest, the Hebrew is really tricky and hard, and really the English versions don't agree at all, and frankly, they get it wrong. I think they get it wrong on this. Here's why. That word whisper there or whispering prayer there in the text, that is only used elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible in the contexts of idolatry. That word is only used in the context of idolatry. That is literally the Hebrew word for snake charming. It's an incantation. It's sorcery. It's a magic spell. The point is, yes, when the going got tough, Judah did cry out to Yahweh to be sure, but at the exact same time, they cried out to a bunch of other gods, recited magic spells, and practiced sorcery at the exact same time. In other words, like many Americans today, they did that thing where you pick what you want from the religion buffet and you pick a religion that works for you. It's called pluralism. It's called syncretism. For that, they needed to repent. My guess is you're not really into charming snakes. My guess is you're not into sorcery. You're not into magic spells. But I'm just going to be totally honest with you. I really don't see much of a difference between what Judah did and many professing Christians do today in listening for God's voice. Waiting for some impression. Looking for a sign wanting a little zap of the supernatural to, to keep them going, because what that is is mysticism. That's, that's mysticism. And I totally understand why people get sucked up into that. They do that because they want to tangibly experience the power and presence of Christ, which they should want. But what I'm saying is, if you want that, look to the text. Here is the voice. Here is the visitation. Here is the experience. Here is the encounter that you crave. But you see, Christ is present, always present in and through his word, ready to meet you, ready to empower you, ready to satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. If you want to hear God speak, 
All you need to do is read Holy Scripture. The people of Judah, unfortunately, they not only looked to other gods to help in days of danger, they looked to other nations to do what Yahweh alone was able to do. And that was a massive no-no. Look at verses 17 and 18. And notice carefully how the lyrics describe the pain. Like a pregnant woman who comes near to give birth and she writhes and cries out in her travailings, so we were before you, Yahweh. We conceived, we writhed, we gave birth, as it were, only to wind. So I've been told, and so I've witnessed, labor pains are excruciating. It's a pretty traumatic and agonizing thing to give birth to another human being, so I'm told. And yet there is an end in sight, right? There is, there is, there is uh, relief in view when the baby arrives and emerges into the world. But unfortunately for Judah, it was all labor, no delivery. It was all pain, no relief. That's what the song means in verse 18 when it says, We gave birth, as it were, only to wind. We were in total anguish and agonizing pain, waiting for relief, waiting for delivery. And yet right when we thought the baby would arrive, we gave birth only to wind. It's pretty crass, but the picture here that Isaiah is giving is that instead of giving birth to a baby, they only passed gas and therefore no relief for their pain. I'm serious. What's, what's even being described here? What is this? Well, King Hezekiah was one of the kings in Isaiah's day. You remember that, right? And here's the thing. He uses this exact same language of labor pains in chapter 37 to describe the invasion of Assyria's armies. That's the correlation here. That's, that's the pain that he's describing. He compares the brutal, hostile pressure from Assyria closing in on every side to the agony of giving birth. And yet, here's the catch. We learn from chapter 30 and 31 and from chapter 36 that one of the things Judah did to bring relief from the pain was to hire the Egyptians to protect them from Assyria's armies. In other words, they hired Egypt as a midwife, as it were, to deliver the baby to bring deliverance from the coming stampede of Assyria's armies, but they could not deliver the baby. Look at the end of verse 18. We did not accomplish salvation in the land, and the inhabitants of the world did not give birth. In other words, it didn't work. Egypt couldn't save them. Nobody could save them. The point is they looked to human means and power and wisdom and refused to trust in the promises of God. And for that, they needed to weep and to lament and to repent. And my question for you is this morning, do you, might you also have some repenting and lamenting to do? What I mean is, where do you run? Where do you go? To whom do you look in moments of crisis and fear, and agony, and pain. What I'm asking is, do you understand that in moments and situations beyond your ability to handle, do you understand that those are a gift from the Lord to trust him for his grace? 
Did you know that pain is a favor from God to drive you to his word so that he can meet you in his word to give you that double shalom that simply surpasses understanding? What I'm really asking is, what I really want to know is, do you trust? I'm, all, I'm, I'm totally serious. Do you trust in the resurrection from the dead? Do you trust in that? Do you know that no matter what it is that happens to you, that if you are in Christ, one day you will rise triumphant from the grave, never to suffer or die again? The reason I ask that is because that's exactly what verse 19 describes. Look at the text. Your dead shall live. Your corpses shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awaken and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. It makes total sense, doesn't it? That in days of danger and times of terror that you would sing about the resurrection from the dead, that one day your, you will live, your corpses will rise, that you will awaken from the dust and shout for joy. Do you believe that this morning? Because that right there is the ultimate nail in the coffin of our fears, isn't it? The clock is 10 minutes fast. Movement number four. Movement number four. This will be quick. Scout's honor. The method of God's intervention. The method of God's intervention. In other words, what's it going to be like when God intervenes? What is it going to be like? when he responds out loud to the centuries and centuries of evil and wickedness that has gone unrestrained upon the earth. Because he will respond, you know. He will answer this and he will respond out loud in a series of terrors and judgments. The most famous name for which the Bible gives is called the Great Tribulation, which is exactly what's described in verses 20 and 21. Look at the text. He says, go, my people, go into your chambers, shut the door behind you, hide a little while until the indignation passes by, for behold, Yahweh will come forth from his place to punish the iniquity of those who dwell on the earth, and the earth will reveal its bloodshed, and it will not cover any more over its slain. Two things you need to notice there. You notice that this is a time of wrath and judgment. Did you see that? It's a time of wrath and judgment, indignation, God's indignation. The other thing you need to see there is that this is not local or limited to a particular place. This is global. This is worldwide. This is planetary. This is to the ends of the earth. I mean, this, is, this is exactly what Christ describes in Matthew 24 when he describes the, the, the tribulation terrors to come and it will be so brutal and catastrophic that God's people living at the time are advised to hide in their houses and take cover in the basements until the indignation passes by. Remember that, Matthew 24? When you see the abomination of the desolation standing in the temple, which I believe to be the Antichrist. Then, in Judea, then let those in Judea flee to the mountains. 
Let those on the roof not go down to get the things out of their house. Let those who are in the field not turn to grab their cloak. Woe to those who are pregnant in those days. Woe to those who are nursing in those days. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not become from the beginning of the world until now. And unless those days would be cut short, no flesh will be spared. That's what this is. And Isaiah in the Bible is clear. Where there's smoke, there's fire. And where there is a tribulation, there is just around the corner the return of Christ to come and build his kingdom. And what that does, you understand, is warrant a response. And in fact, four responses to clear and present danger as we patiently wait for kingdom deliverance. These are in your notes, and these are going to go fast. Number one, in clear and present danger, we must trust in Yahweh. We must trust in Yahweh. And what does it mean to trust him? We see this in verse 8, or, or, or excuse me, in, um, in verse 4. And what does it mean to trust him? but to take him at his word and to know that he is in control. Response number two, we must hope in Yahweh. We must hope in Yahweh. This is in verse eight. And what is hope? But the head on the chopping block assurance that God himself is the fulfillment of our deepest longings forever and that all eternity will consist in everlasting and ever-increasing enjoyment of him forever. Do you hope in Yahweh this morning? Number three, we must seek Yahweh. In clear and present danger, we must seek Yahweh. This was in verse nine. And, and, and what does it mean to seek Yahweh other than that in and through his word, we must cling to his promises with kung fu grip intensity. Do you know his promises? Do you read his promises? Do you cling to his promises? Do you seek Yahweh today? Number four, in clear and present danger, we must remember Yahweh. We must remember him. This is in verse 13. And what does it mean? What does it mean to remember him other than that we recall and we rehearse to our weary souls every single day that in the cross of his son we have everything we need. We are regenerated. We are forgiven. We are adopted. We are justified. We are reconciled to God as the treasure of our souls and one day we will be glorified and in the kingdom of his son we will declare together forever worthy is the lamb. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for songs to be sung in days of danger for lyrics to recite in times of terror. Thank you for reality, that the truth, theology is reality. Lord, that this can be trusted. This is clear. This is powerful. This is profound. We need this. Oh, Lord, you have ordained that we would live for such a day as this. This moment in the history is what we've been living and waiting for and training for our entire lives. 
Help us, Lord, to not retreat from the world, but to more boldly and lovingly engage the world. Help us, O oh Lord, to meet the world, to meet people, to look people in the eyes and give them profound resurrection hope. Warning too, and yet profound hope in you that's found alone in you, O Christ. Thank you for Isaiah and for the reality it contains. In Christ's name we pray.